Hi, this is Jean Nathan. It is Crosstown Conversations. And um, we, as always, have some very interesting and informative guests. Um, so I think you'll enjoy it. Uh, some of them are fun and some of them have just really important information to share. We've done about, I don't know, close to 3,000 interviews now over the years. And I think um, people tend to appreciate the, the information they're getting from us. So here goes for today. We are here with Ann Baker, who is, um, as you can kind of tell from her background, I think, a gardener and um, a pretty sensational one at that. And one who is, um, she'll do anything. She'll climb up palm, palm trees and um, she'll do uh, veggie uh, uh, and herb gardens. And then she'll slash away at palm trees that are in the way. You name it, she'll take care of it. But um, we're talking with her today because she's going to be part of our program on Saturday at the um, uh, Legacy Garden, which is a little park in the middle of the Central Business District, uh, right across from Rouse's. And it's part of kind of um, new thinking about how we go forward in the city with COVID and, and get people moving around and enjoying things outside in um, some of these smaller spaces where we can have smaller events with uh, not so much of a big crowd and, and um, help people enjoy the city again. And so I'm real, really thrilled that you were able to participate with us. And what we wanted to talk about in particular, I think because of the time of the year it is, is our, um, you know, our, our fall winter blooming season. So just as so many communities around the country are going gray and bare, um, we are busting out in color. Uh, Absolutely. It's cold everywhere else. And we are so lucky to have warm seasons, well, you know, pretty much year round. And fall is the absolute best time to be growing in New Orleans, whether you're doing flowers oh, yeah. or vegetables or planting trees or planting bulbs. This is the best time of the year. Wow. I didn't know that. I mean, I, I knew that it was the best time to plant for winter growth, but I didn't know in, in general it's the best time. So t tell me why. So, well, you, you know, in springtime and you see those gardens and they're just covered in flowers and things are just cascading all over and you go, wow, this is beautiful. How come my garden look, doesn't look like that? Well, it's because people started in fall and we're just blessed to be able to have pretty much not too much frost around here. We're kind of semi-tropical. So once in a while we'll have a freeze. It'll knock things out. But generally, most years we have great years and there's no freezes and you can garden all the way through Jazz Fest, which is up in April. <laughs> That's a pretty good landmark um, or milestone, however the case may be. Um, so what, what in particular um, are the good things to plant at this time of the year? Oh, lots of stuff. So trees are great. This is the best time to put trees in because it's kind of a dormant time. So you can do anything from pecan trees to citrus trees to, to ornamentals. Um, flowers, you can do perennials. You can do perennials are the plants that grow year round. Or you can put in your annuals, which are plants that grow annually, meaning you have to replace them annually. Also, we're really lucky that a lot of our annuals, because of this fall season and winter season not being so strong, actually end up being perennials. Um, so pretty much anything you want to plant now is perfect. And it's going to be blooming probably all the way through spring. 
So there are certain things, though, that we think of as winter flowers, right? Mm -hmm. Some of them from other places that we can't have. Uh, one of the few things I miss from the East um, are um, uh, the little um, lilies of the valley and sure. the... Um, uh, the, the um, uh, Absolutely. There's a lot for the peonies and the lilacs. Okay, those are. But instead, instead, we have camellias and sasanquas and. Yeah, we have azaleas. We have all sorts of stuff. There's, there's lots of things. Rebecca, which is also known as uh, black-eyed season, uh, Susans or purple cone flowers, will bloom right now. Your azaleas, you'll see them busting out all over St. Charles. Just take a cruise up along the streetcar line, and it's absolutely gorgeous. Uh, those continue to go. Um, there's some hydrangeas that will actually, certain varieties that will actually uh, bloom here in the fall. Um, and then, of course, all your vegetables. And other seasonal flowers will be blooming as well. I've got pentas going on behind me, which are perennial. And what these are those? Yeah, I was looking at those. The orange flowers? The, the, big, the orange ones are my leftover zinnias from the summer, which uh -huh. I'm allowing to reseed so that I will have them next summer. After they kind of finish off, I'm going to pull them out and put in some fall flowers like nasturtiums, like alyssum. So nasturtiums are also an edible flower and edible leaves. They have big round leaves. Um, and alyssum is a little kind of decorative little white flower. Sometimes you see them in pink or purple, but typically in white. Um, and those will bloom all uh, fall through spring. Also brings all the beneficial insects in too. And these red ones behind me uh, back here are called pentas, which are also a butterfly attracting plant. And they're perennial and they'll bloom all year. And you're going you're gonna to bring a few of these guys with you for the event on Saturday so people can get a look at them. And, Absolutely. And, uh, I want everybody to be able to see what they can plant and have blooming in the fall because, like I said, we're, we're really fortunate. If you get those things started like larkspur and delphiniums and um, the nasturtiums, those will all go pansies and snapdragons, we all know, because we see them all the time. Um, but also there's shade plants that are like a stilb and huchera and hosta that will go all the way through. So no matter what kind of garden, whether you have a, a patio or a porch or just a little spot in the corner of your driveway or you have a big oak tree in your front yard, there's a way to put plants in to have some color out there all the way through spring. It's really pretty amazing as you drive around the city. I always say whether it's a little one, there, there was a lady on um, Governor Nichols uh, just around the block from me. I would go down um, uh, Galvez to get to where I needed, let's see, not down Galvez. It's the other street that runs along Galvez, but- Huh? Miro to Miro. go uh, to go downtown, and uh, all year long she had a rose bush. It just bloomed and bloomed and bloomed. I think it got hit by something, so now she has um, a whole other plant there that looks very beautiful. So uh, oleanders uh, are another good one that we see year round in New Orleans that blooms a lot. Which they, they start out as a small bush, but they can get very large depending on the variety, and they bloom in like whites and pinks. And I've even seen yellow ones now. And oleanders are such a really great perennial plant that you can just leave out in the yard and let it do its thing. Also, you have hibiscus. Hibiscus is great. They were showing hibiscus. I had no idea that that was a winter bloomer. Yeah, it, it'll go through. It won't be as profuse as it will in the springtime because in the summer, it, it loves the heat. But it will continue blooming, and if you deadhead it, which means remove the old spent flowers, it will continue to produce more 
And, you know, of course, any of those perennials are going to kind of chill out and slow down their growth when the winter comes along. But through the fall, while we have these semi-warm months, they're going to keep doing their thing. But let's talk about camellias, which um, are, are such an incredible a species of plant because they have so many varieties. And I've been to a number of camellia shows here, which as a former Yankee coming to these clubs with all these guys who are the <laughs> camellia um, freaks, uh, right. I was like it was just jaw dropping, jaw dropping to see them um, because it, it really, it's a, it's a special kind of custom in this area. It seems like for people to be sort of just, passionately um, fans of a particular kind of flower and they Absolutely. go through the effort to really um, come up with the the special prize beautiful camellias are amazing it always amazes me that they really don't have that much scent i guess they figure what do i need scent for when you have all this looks so good, right <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And it's really fun going to, if you ever get a chance to go to one of those shows out there that has, whether they're at the fall or spring garden show or where they have their own independent shows, they will just bring all of the best blossoms. And yeah. it's such a heritage plant here in New Orleans. It's New Orleans. It's been around forever. Um, and people, you see them all the time, just having them out in their front yard. They'll catch you out of the corner of your eye. You'll go, oh, what is that? When you're driving down the street and you buy one in someone's backyard. And it's just, it's a real delight. And so when you can not only learn about them through these clubs, but also be able to go to some of the local nurseries and find some of those hardy varieties, disease-resistant varieties. And there was fantastic varieties. It's, it's lovely to have in your yard. They just look spectacular. Some of them also, the more recent uh, varieties that have been concocted by the florists, um, you know, they're, they're so beautiful, they actually look dangerous. I mean, they're just, you know, elaborate <laughs> rainbows of colors, and you're wondering, what this real? flowers? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, they're going to be pretty technicolor. It's amazing. They, they really are gorgeous, though. And, you know, Sasanquas, is, they're, they're a more modest version, of course, of the camellias that come out first. But the fact that they pop out early in the fall, and they, and they kind of say, okay, here come the blooms. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. I like seeing those certain plants that are just kind of uh, the trademarks of fall. Like one of the, my favorite things to do is when I'm driving around town, you know, a little bit different than uh, the camellias and Sasanquas, but they had this thing called a golden rain tree. And, and as oh, the fall yeah. begins, and it's the very, very hint beginning of fall that you start to see these right. trees and they put out oh, a little bit of color. Yeah. And, they, yeah, and then they, they turn bright yellow and then they change to this wonderful kind of orange salmon. Mm -hmm. And they're absolutely beautiful trees. And that's, that's one of those um, there's, uh, demarcation plants that you see around time, like the Sasanquas, that let you know, hey, fall's on the way. And you know what one of my favorites is that I'm not sure you would classify it as a fall or winter flower, but it does seem to come out at least very late in the summer. And it's one of my absolute favorites. And I think one of the names for it, it has more than one name, um, is Rose of Montana. I think some people call it coral plant. And it's just so, to me, it's so romantic because it has these little teeny kind of teardrop shaped, you know, bright pink flowers, typically. Yeah, There's kind of, a lot yeah of like that little too. kind of pink coral color, yeah. Right. Yeah, they're really special. And you'll see them popping up everywhere. You'll, it's funny also because you'll have neighborhoods where people have planted, that's another wonderful thing about our heritage plants in fall. People in the past may have planted those plants years ago. 
but they keep on keeping on. So you'll go through some neighborhoods that maybe kind of a little blighter, or maybe they're not so pretty. And then boom, you'll get that pop of color. And it's just really nice to be reminded that, hey, someone years back planted this beauty and look, we're still sharing it to this day. Yeah. The only thing I have to say about Rosa Montana, which as I said, is one of my favorites to the point where I will take my scissors in my car and <laughs> snip little pieces of it, especially from abandoned house sites, as oh, yeah. you say, where they're, they're left over. I can't grow those in my garden. They don't take well, off. That's what the scissors are for. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes, you know, you need sunnier areas to do those or, or, or more of an area that has something that they can climb on or, you know, everything's particular, but that's the fun of having your own yard and kind of discovering what works for you and what doesn't work for you. And also, if you don't I've have it, them everything you said, I've given them everything that you're supposed to do, the climbing, <laughs> the sun, they just, they won't take here. And, and I love them. I really do. So it's, it's kind of a frustration. Maybe you can figure that out. But um, let me, let me go back to the sort of more universal question about how gardening became so important in New Orleans, how you became a gardener. And, um, you know, a sort of, Wherefore aren't we, you know, how, what, what, how is COVID affecting our gardening capacity and, and how do you see it reshaping if it is, maybe it just is going to be one yeah. of those things that will kind of survive and, and not be uh, uh, changed too much by what we're going through. Well, the first thing is how did it come about? Well, originally people pretty much grew their own food and talking about way back in the day when New Orleans first got settled. We did a lot of trade with people across the river. People grew around the areas, but as the city grew up, people had almost a kind of a, like a backyard garden. Exactly, they had in their backyard. And then some of the nuns and stuff in the rectories would set up a big, big garden and they would have all sorts of traditional, not only food plants, but also healing herbs and as well as uh, uh, culinary herbs as well. So it started as that. And then later as things went on, people were introduced to more ornamentals, especially in the kind of mid 1800s. A lot of stuff came over that were exotic from over in the, the Far East, which were things were like palms and stuff that were never really here other than down in Florida, the palmettos. But things that started to come over like your camellias and all those other things that we just didn't have before. It was very exciting. People started putting varieties in their front yard that had good sense because of course you had a lot of carriages out front, a lot of mules, a lot of horses making the, some messes. So uh, they wanted things like that. I never thought of that. <laughs> really, that it was very traditional in New Orleans to have a sweet olive by your front door. Yeah. So you had that wonderful blooming scent. So yeah. you could kind of avoid some of the other scents, if you know what I mean. But yeah, certain plants really started to take on that heritage just because year after year we did that. Um, as times went by, our food system changed, so people aren't growing as many food for their entire family gardens. But there are a lot of urban gardeners that have a wonderful food garden, all sorts of variety, either just for fun to grow a tomato, or some people have put, taken over their entire yard to grow a really big expansive uh a lot of food. So that's how I see gardening changes over the time. Also ornamentals, of course, it always looks good, you know? Um, and then oh. on to your next question, you asked how I got started. So years ago, my mom, uh, we're Cajun. We always had, back in the day, we had food gardens. And then my mother always planted ornamental stuff and I was always interested in it. We always had fresh food in the garden. And I thought, why should I be paying for this at the store? I can do this. So because of all the stuff I learned from her early on, 
uh, I learned how to garden. And then as time went on, I'm like, I need to share this with people. I need to make sure that people learn how to do this themselves. It's, there's a lot of nuances and a lot of information to learn. But once you just do it, you start learning real quick, and there's a lot of resources out there. Um, I worked in food justice for many years so that people always had equal access to food, and part of that is food gardening. Um, and it's just got to look good, baby. So not only do I have my food gardens, but I also have my ornamentals. It's, it's a nice little balance to have in your life. As for COVID, I think the way things have changed is they have seen a huge burst in gardening interest, which I think is fantastic. Um, I remember early on when people were a lot more homebound, um, there was uh, a lot more ordering of plants online and a lot more gardens just popping, popping up because you're stuck at home. If you already had that interest in that hobby, or maybe it was like, well, I could maybe throw a plant in the yard. Well, you just get out of the house. It blew up. Yeah. And so I tell you what, uh, as it later on, I went over to uh, some of the box stores to go get some gardening tools or gardening plants or some seed packets. And everything was just gone because people were doing it. So I think it's been a really good thing. It's kept people in contact, uh, you know, with the dirt, which I think is kind of a nice little Zen thing. You know, it's a nice distraction from worrying about stuff. And then you get the benefit of either the beauty or some form of food out of it, which I just think is the best. So I think that. Don't you think that the story about our green city? Uh, about both the ornamentals, the food, the herbs, and, and all of what characterizes our city. The palm trees you mentioned, my garden, of course, has become a jungle of those Chinese fan palms because I didn't know how many babies they have. I had no idea. And they are just <laughs> all over the place. But I um, think that this is a sort of an untold story. We all talk about the music, the food. Increasingly, people are aware of our architecture, but you're still not hearing about the green New Orleans, which I think is an enormous attracting factor, especially for us residents. I mean, we really enjoy it. We want to be surrounded by the green. But what about Absolutely. the getting out to the visitors? It is. And I think it's funny because people, once they start growing here in their own yards or on their porches, they find that it's not so much what you can grow it's what you have to stop from growing because it just, things just burst out everywhere here. It's really, really a green city. One of the reasons I first moved here years and years and years ago was coming in the spring and smelling the smell of jasmine. It was just so magical. It was such an amazing scent and it just went around with the, you could hear the music in the air and smell the jasmine and the wonderful food. And it just that greenness, the beautiful arches of the oak trees uh, the fact that we have cypress growing everywhere. And then the flowers everywhere you go. One of our parts of our city is called the Garden District, for goodness sake. So, yeah, it's it's a pretty green city. It's absolutely beautiful. So how do you see us coming out of the COVID uh, as people um, sort of start to return more to normal? I have a feeling that they'll never um, walk a away from their gardening experience, that it's going to become a more dominant part of everybody's lives. Yeah, absolutely. It's almost addictive because there's such a benefit in growing plants. Just the magic of watching a seed pop up is, it never made, I mean, never stops amazing me. It's just an incredible thing. But all the benefits you get from it, just your house gets greener. You have something nice to look at. There's food coming from it. I think all the permanent installations that people have put in their yards, uh, it, it just has made a huge difference. Um, you can see driving around since COVID how many more things have popped up. 
uh, the interest in community gardens and the farmers markets, I think as they reopen, um, people are gonna start being more and more active because they've learned some new tricks, right? So mm -hmm. I think uh, it's just gonna be a real benefit to all. And I say, come on, bring it. Let's all do it. I love it. And I, and I hope that uh, climate change, uh, which um, a lot of people are really concerned about what the effect of that's gonna be on this region because we are losing land and uh, we're, we're losing um, you know, the obstacles to surges. So we're more worried about surges in, intruding into our unprotected areas. So it, there, there are some extreme challenges that um, some folks are worried about for our future. But um, I would say that this is not one of them. We're going to continue to be green. No, and the benefit is if you're planting plants that are native plants or you're planting plants that are suited for our uh, agricultural zone, which is either 8B or 9A, um, then you're going to have plants that are going to be resistant to a lot of those weather changes for a good while. Um, also, they're going to be resistant to pests and stuff that we find as the weather warms. You know what? More plants in the ground means more soil. So it's always good. I know we're in the city, but we're right next door to the wetlands. So as they replant those, that's helping. So get it green. Okay. Ann Baker, um, as I said, a rather exceptional gardener. She's going to be in the Legacy Park this Saturday from noon until four. And she's going to be there to help you understand how to plant that wonderful camellia you want or herbs that you'd like. Yeah. And um, I'm looking forward to it. I think it'll be a blast. And I think you can tell Anne's personality is definitely um, a fun ingredient to the whole story. And thank you so much. And Absolutely. Thanks for having me. I can't wait to see everybody. Yeah. Good. All right. See you Saturday. Bye. Let's thank start. you. By the way, let me just remind everybody, it's in the 700 block of Barone, right on the other side of the Rouse Market. So it's really easy to get to. It's a sweet little park. And uh, besides the uh, gardens, we're going to have drumming, um, the drum circle by Luther Gray. I mean, you, can't, you just can't beat that combination of blooms and beats. And thank you to the Downtown Development District for making it all possible. And they are really after trying to uh, get people out and enjoy these um, small green spaces. So thank you to them. Okay. Thank you. See Bye, you soon. Rob. Thank you. If I call three times a day, baby, come and drive my blues away. When you come, be ready to play. woman in town. Oh, babe, when I need attention at home, I'll just call you on the telephone. Come yourself, don't send your friend Joan. Do
today with Giovanna Joseph, who is an extremely talented both performer and cultural organizer. And she is the queen, you might say, of um, um, opera creole. And um, opera creole, I have seen now, I guess about three performances, at least maybe more of, of, of opera creole's productions. And they participated in one that I did, and they are sensational. They are absolutely first-rate opera performers and very much um, reflective of the unique culture of New Orleans, of course. Let's start at the beginning, Giovanna. How did you come to be interested in opera? I think you're from New Orleans, am I correct? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Through and through. At least six generations worth. Six generations? Wow. That's, yeah, that's about right. And, and you, um, how did you get interested in opera in the first place? Um, how did you go from being interested in it to becoming a singer? How did you go from being a singer to um, organizing a company? Those are big steps. <laughs> well, first of all, I'm blessed to say that my, my household was a very open-minded household. And I first saw opera singers on TV. And I always noticed that my mom would just stop dead in her tracks, you know, whenever there was uh, a movie on that had Mary Mario Lanza or um, any of those kinds of things. When they came on the Tonight Show, she, she just loved them. And I, I, you know, I became enamored myself. And then I was about 15, I tried to audition for a show at North Theater and I didn't have much volume. And so Leah Chase, the great jazz singer, uh, recommended her voice teacher to me, Charles Paddock, who was uh, a teacher at Loyola University. And so I began the classical study at that point. And uh, he just confirmed my love for it, uh, nurtured me in every possible way, and I followed him to Loyola. And so, but I've been singing from day one, but that, that was my classical journey. And um, it's so common for talent, uh, creative talent, to start very young. Yeah. Unfortunately, uh, with voice, we can't start as, as young as a string player. So we, we come into college with a little bit of a theory disadvantage sometimes. But, um, but at Loyola, I was nurtured very well and, and uh, given lots of confidence also by the uh, then director of New Orleans Opera. Um, uh, and so he was one of my teachers. So it was just, it was just fate just guiding me along, you know, uh, everything coming together. And so I um, had a wonderful opportunity to sing. And then when my daughter uh, said, she kept saying, mommy, you need to go back to opera. Cause I sang other things when she was little in order to have the freedom. Opera takes a lot of time. And um, she was um, accepted into college and my phone started ringing the next day. 
And so I came back to opera and got my first role in many years with New Orleans Opera in their first production of Porgy and Bess. And from that production, I met a whole lot of um, African-American singers. And, and the thing that kept has, has propelled me over the years is always hearing people say, you're an opera singer, or black people don't do that, or yeah, that's really odd to see a black opera singer. And it really, I knew that it was not as odd as people thought. And I wanted, I wanted to have a company where people would come together, where we would go, where you would not necessarily expect to see opera singers. And they get to see what we do and how we sound. And also talk about the fact that we have a wonderful history, people of African descent in opera, that's not well known. So mm. that was sort of my, uh, the thing that propelled me to start Opera Creole. Hmm. And um, Opera Creole has been uh, um, really quite successful. I assume you had your years of struggle, and you always do, any cultural company. I don't care, care what color, gender, place, right. it's, um, just it, it's a struggle. Yeah. We, don't, we don't have a good system in our country for supporting the arts. Let's just yeah. leave it at that. Yeah. Um, but you've, you've figured out how to stay alive. How many years now? We'll, we'll be in our tent. We're, this would, would be, were it not for COVID, our 10th season. So uh, yeah. May yeah. Of, yeah, May will be 10 years for us. So we've, we've okay. been hanging around a while. Yeah. Um, how, um, how did you build your relationships uh, with other cultural entities and financial and, and ins other institutions that have been an important part of your, let's call it the ecosystem that you work with? Well, luckily, I, I, I feel like I've always kind of been in the mode of, of not just being a person that shows up on stage, but being a person who develops relationships. It's, that's always just been how I was wired. And so um, um, by the time we started to do this, there were people in place to say, you know, hey, let's help you. The Louisiana Creole Research Association sponsored our first concert. Um, you know, New Orleans Opera has uh, their their uh, uh, junior committee was was with us at the very beginning, and so many people in the community, as they people got to learn about us, uh, branched out. And Dave Herbert at the Marini Opera House, he says, "We we've got to do something over here. We need to we don't work with you." And so I've I've always made it um, uh, an important part of what I do, just in general, to be in relationship with other cultural organizations. I think it's important because we, you know, to exist by ourselves is one thing, but we all have collective issues. And the more we can support each other and, and share our thoughts and ideas and struggles, the better for everybody. So I know um, that it, it was um, uh, very natural and easy for me to think of you when I was doing the Ninth Ward Improv Opera. And- um, That was so much fun. I, I would love to have had you even more in that production. That when we did it the first time, even the second time, uh, you know, we were pulling it. I don't. I think it would be indiscreet for me to say which body part we were pulling it from. <laughs> but, <laughs> but we were, um, you know, just making it happen on the fly with very little resources, and um, uh, it came to this moment of of calling out. How did I represent the bureaucratic impediments? that people were faced with. And I, I gave you the assignment of figuring out how to call out those issues. 
And, and you, you did, and you handed out pieces of paper to people saying, <laughs> you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't do this. Right. And that represented, even with all the fervor that folks had to come home, how difficult it was. So it was a very important part of the production. I'm still trying to get money to finish the video and present it. So keep your fingers crossed for me. Yeah. We should talk about that because maybe you have some ideas. I just got turned down by the Louisiana Endowment for the Humanities. I think this is at least the second time. Oh, um, we're going to get it. We're going to get it, and we're going to we're going to uh, present, uh, finish, and present the video that we did of of your production for one. Well, one of the one of the things about you asking me to do that was because I I had lived it, you know, and um, I lost um, my my house soaked in eleven feet of water for three mm -hmm. weeks, and then I had because of that I had to tear it down to the studs in the roof, and then I haven't I, so I ended up just not having a house. And, um, I, you know, lost my jobs. I mean, everything just all happened at the same time. And so, but because I had insurance, I couldn't, you know, get um, uh, uh, habitat assistance. There was a lot of things, assistance that I could not get that you would think, well, I had insurance, I was responsible. All of my insurance money, the, the mortgage companies demanded all their, their money back from everybody. So I was in a really um, serious situation of having living lived through that. And, and that is what opera is. That's what people miss. Opera is really about the angst of life, you know. And we look at things that were written years ago, but when you look inside those stories, it's about the angst of life and survival and triumph, you know. And so I, I just thought that was a great thing to do. How has um, the, the, the pandemic, uh, the COVID experience and the collapse of our hospitality industry as a result of it, and of course of our whole economy, everything uh, affected you. And uh, what, are, what are some of the um, really obviously painful aspects of it, but also ha have there, has there been any kind of, um, in, in your experience, um, any opportunities and what new visions or ways of thinking about what you do that have come out of it? Well, the thing that I, I have, been recently talking to people about is that the very last group that will recover will be the performing artists. Um, even as bars are opening, restaurants are opening, live performances are still not allowed in those places. Um, uh, the places that are just primarily performing arts spaces, they don't know what to do. We, we will be the very last and, and we're the thing that people value the most in their, in their lives. The music is their comfort and their joy in the midst of this thing. But we will be the last ones that will finally get our, our feedback on the ground. But Geneva, what about outdoor spaces? I, I'm a proponent of the city's green, which a lot of people don't think of us that way. They, they think about our, our music, our food. Uh, some people are aware after they've been here of our architecture, but um, this this important green backdrop that we have, I think, is totally yeah. unsupervised. Why can't we use smaller spaces around the city, smaller venues, have smaller performances, charge a small fee to uh, uh, for the artists, and and uh, yeah. look look to our 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 outdoor green spaces as venues. I, I am for that. I have not had an opportunity to um, do as much research on my own about that. I know that there are, um, you know, the big companies are looking at that and there's a lot of permit issues and things of how to, how to actually get this together. Um, 
And, but even in outdoor venues for opera singers, you know, and start talking about spraying droplets, um, the, the best of us have, we spray a lot of droplets, you know, just so six feet means nothing um, when you're talking about opera singers. Mm, and so wow. there's at least a 12 foot spray wow. of, <laughs> of droplets. And mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, even in outdoor spaces, there's still some concern of whether people will even come because they're nervous about those kinds of things. Um, I, I am certainly open to exploring that more, more and more. Um, I just not have had the opportunity uh, to do so. As you know, we, um, uh, in the middle of this pandemic, my, my granddaughter was born four months early and was in the NICU for, for four months. And we have just recently gotten her back home and there's lots of challenges. So I just kind of had to put some things on hold, even though I'm trying to plan out for the spring um, as much as I can, but I haven't, I haven't been in the nitty gritty of, of um, trying to put some, something together quickly. Yeah. Although later today I will be, um, I'll be doing something outside with Make Music NOLA. It's their 10th anniversary and they're filming some things. So I'm going to sing a little something with some of the students that I've worked with. And, um, but, um, but everything that I'm looking at now is, is kind of like spring projections. So be sure to share that uh, information with me for the newsletter, um, our newsletter and our radio show. Okay. Uh, yeah. We know when the timing makes sense. So what about the future? Okay. I understand that the, you're, you're, now you're living the, the real life angst of the <laughs> performing angst of opera. Um, it, it happens. And um, it's certainly, um, on the other hand, I, I, keep posing this theory that disasters somehow spur new cultural rebirth yes. in different ways. And so how, how do you see um, going forward? And um, give me a little bit of a um, more detail on how Creole opera is organized and, and how you see it emerging from this. Well, one of the things that Opera Creole, um, what we're doing right now is we're looking at uh, building on some things that we can do individually. I'm in the process of putting together um, a book about black opera in New Orleans. Wow. Uh, so that's, that was something. There's I a pivot. That's a pivot. <laughs> yeah. The, so it was something I planned on doing before the pandemic happened. And I'm, I'm, I'm hoping to, you know, settle myself down into that. And also expanding on our opera that we wrote for the tricentennial, the Lions of Reconstruction. So those are some uh, individual things that um, and Ari and I will be working on. Um, we are looking at uh, some projects coming down the line. Um, but one of the things that I'm, that I'm hoping to do more of in these next few weeks is start a, a campaign to raise funds for an opera I've been holding on to for a long time that's never been performed, written by a free man of color, Edmund Dede. Uh, written around 18... Why is that name, why is that name familiar to me? Oh yeah, he's one of our great classical composers. Okay. Uh, free man of color. And um, the only thing that's been performed from it is the uh, overture that Richard Rosenberg uh, put together. But it's, um, it's uh, five, five acts, 550 pages, fully orchestrated in French. Okay. And um, so we've been slowly trying to raise money for uh, transcribing it into orchestral, uh, 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 printed orchestral scores, because it's in his handwriting. 
and um, being able to put that on the stage. So that's something that I'm trying to get uh, money behind. Um, and we are, we're looking at a project in the spring with HNOC and LPO. Um, um, we're hoping that we have that opportunity to, to, do, to do it. So I don't want to say too much yet, but um, it should be at the cathedral um, maybe in March, if, if wow. March. If March allows. That sounds, that <laughs> sounds allows. very exciting. Yeah. That sounds very exciting. I we would imagine. Were, uh, we were planning on doing William Grant Stills, A Bayou Legend, for this past May, and I had to cancel it. So we'll be remounting that. Um, we're, um, I, I had a uh, project with um, uh, New York Public Radio that I was supposed to do an opera and race project with them. So that will be rescheduled and um, you know, Jazz Fest. I mean, there was so many things we had going that we hope yeah. to have rescheduled. Well, what's interesting about the way you're describing what you're doing, in contrast to what our opera um, menu, so to speak, has been in New Orleans, with the exception of um, the production that was done, and I don't remember the name of it, that... Um, uh, about the boxer, which was so fabulous that champion, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, so many of our operas are the traditional operas, but and and not necessarily um, reflective or indigenous to New Orleans. But it sounds like your company is really the company in the city. Tell me, I'm wrong. That is making that happen, making sure that our operatic um, uh, playlist, so to speak. Is, is being presented. We're doing our very best. We want to do the things that, that are not on the main stage. We want to encourage um, uh, com companies, bigger companies to also investigate this music um, and to, to stretch beyond their boundaries. But for, not, for now, our specialty is things that have been lost or things that are rarely performed and especially things by composers of African descent. We also have another opera that's been presented to us called The Mask in the Mirror. And it's about two poets, um, uh, Paul Lawrence Dunbar, who was married to a New Orleans woman, um, Alice Moore Dunbar Nelson, who was also a poet. And it's about their tumultuous marriage. So it has um, uh, some New Orleans ties to it, although the composer is a living composer. Uh, he's not from New Orleans. So we, we, we continue to investigate those kinds of things that we can make an impact and and to to um, let people know that at least 250 years we have had our feet in opera as people of African descent all the way back from the Chevalier de Saint Georges. So this is our music too, and we love it and doing the best with it. I I, I think you what you're doing is not just the the best that you can do with it, but um, really doing what. Uh, I, I must say, when I first came here, I expected to see a lot more of. I'm not an opera aficionado, but I, um, when I lived in New York, I, I used to go, you know, grab those last minute tickets outside the Met, you know, <laughs> and, and get, you know, wonderful yeah. seats. And, yeah. and I went primarily for the productions, to be honest, because I'm more visual um, uh, uh, than I am uh, someone who's really understands um, the way to appreciate opera, but the more I went, the more I got to be yeah. able to 
really enjoy, but I particularly like contemporary opera or I like opera, as you say, that is about the heritage of the area that I'm from. So mm -hmm. uh, the other opera that um, the New Orleans opera did produce once about the, the, the woman composer um, of opera from here that um, uh, was performed by the New Orleans opera quite a few years ago, maybe more than a maybe as many as two decades ago. Do you know who I'm talking about? I'm not going to remember. Oh, you're talking about Pontalba? Yes. Opera by, exactly. yeah, I got to sing in that. Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah. Yeah, the well, composer that was, was a woman composer, Taya Musgrave. She wasn't from here, but the story of the Baroness de Pontalba is a New Orleans story. Right. perfect for opera. I mean, it's just so great. It was a great opera and I really enjoyed the production. I thought the production was great. So, I mean, I think that we do a, a, a great job of producing opera and people forget, uh, if, I, if I'm not mistaken, if I remember my history correct, we had the first continuous opera house and season in the new world in America. Absolutely. Absolutely. How did that happen? Well, um, I always say, I always say if it were not for opera and the pumping system, people would have left New Orleans. <laughs> but what ended up happening was because um, New Orleans was uh, originally not a very hospitable place. The powers that be of, 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 of France said we have to bring in the cultural arts. That, you know, people need something to do. And um, so operas from France were brought brought originally here before before New York was even a thing. And so 1797 was uh, was was the first opera uh, documented and it's and documented as part of a season. Uh, somebody may have done an opera before that, but not as part of a season. I don't know. But yeah, oh, but we're the first. So so this has actually some very important reverberations for me. As you know, my focus is on trying to get New Orleans to better appreciate the creative industries in general, not just the yeah. performing and visual arts, but all of the various creative forms yeah. as an important part of the city's um, economic growth and opportunity. And what you're telling me is that way back in 1797, um, the French uh, colonialists- 1796, I'm sorry about that. Yeah. Uh, foresaw the importance of adding the, the cultural uh, experience to the city's life as a way of promoting its growth. Right, absolutely. That just absolutely. floors me. It's like, you know, nothing is really ever new. Uh, again, yeah, I read this great story that the women used to leave home in whatever they were wearing in the house barefoot because the streets were very muddy and mucky. And so they would go barefoot with, you know, someone, a servant or a slave. I'm, someone carrying their costume or their ball gown for the evening and they would get to the French Opera House or wherever it may be um, and there was a place to wash your feet and your legs <laughs> and then get dressed for the evening. As I say, you can't make this up. It, it, it's just part of our strange heritage. It, it really is. Um... We've always needed music we've always needed the culture in new orleans it's not just the thing we've always needed it who else would go out barefoot in the muck and mire to go here 90 degree heat and humidity <laughs> too, right although the season of course it tends to be in the fall i'm sure but yeah uh, okay where do we go from here what what um again back to 
this has been a torturous time, the pandemic, but we, we are moving forward. Obviously, you're thinking about a book. Um, you're thinking about new productions that are going to come out. My feeling is that, that people are doing two things right now. They're trying to help others who are mm -hmm. struggling, and they are trying to um, be creative and come up with um, things that they can carry forward as we emerge from the worst of this um, experience. Thanks. Absolutely. Yeah, I've, I've tried as best I could. We, we don't have the mega bucks. I wish I could have just been paying all of our singers, you know, all along, but I've tried as I, as I have been able to, to look out for them. And um, we had a, a royalty that came through on something that's a, about to be, um, uh, released um, CD that we recorded. And so I was able to, in it, they paid us in advance. I was able to send that to some of my singers. I'll give you more information on that later. Um, but, you know, I've tried to look out for them, but I, I wish that we were yeah. in better financial shape that I could say, here, I'm just going to send you this, you know, every week or every month or something. Um, yeah. But we're, we're also looking at exploring more ways that we can, um, um, provide more for them in terms of using their own expertise. We're looking at expanding our educational offerings. We're looking at um, doing a, a summer program, uh, uh, internship or residency uh, to include not only singers, but doing a residency about um, production development and those kinds of things. So we want to expand in that area as well as part of our strategic is, is the university of of opera creole uh, far behind <laughs> i don't know about that but we're trying to do something we're trying to do something so we're, we're hoping to bring young singers in during the summer and um, you know work with them we have some of our singers are great voice teachers um, and great teachers in general so we um we do have the resources um in terms of our, um, uh, the, the ability of the people that we work with um, to uh, offer them more and to also give more to the community. So. It's, it's just, um, uh, I'm, you know, as I say, I'm, I'm a big fan and I love the work and, and the quality of your performances. I went to Tremonisha at Music Box and loved yeah, every okay. second of it. It was just, you know, a, a, a drop jaw for the whole thing Thank and you. Um, uh, look forward to uh, everything that you're you're going to do going forward any last thoughts did you want to share with me um i you know we we always talk about the cultural economy and i do hope that in this in season of COVID, that we really have the opportunity to really talk about the economic impact not only um what musicians and cultural artists have provided to the city, but, um, but the pain that we've been in, in that we, we were shut down. I mean, many of us also teachers in schools and we were shut down. Right. And um, so- All I, sources I, of income for creators were- Right, terrible. right, right. And so I hope that we can really reinvigorate the conversation about how we take care of our artists in New Orleans, because without our artists, New Orleans isn't New Orleans. That's just, that's just the fact. And we have to take care of each other. And I hope that I can play some role in making that better for, um, for, for all of us. I mean, the dancers, and I, I mean, I can't even imagine what, what they've gone through. And, um, 
so we have to take care of each other and we have to really have better conversations with our city and our state and federal government about holding up the arts, you know, really, really um, revering us, not just to call us when something is happening political or if it's a, you know, um, some event where you have to have music. I mean, the Olympics without music, can you imagine Olympics with no cultural presentation of the countries? No, I can't so. even. Um, I, I, <laughs> I also feel other cities have actually done a better job of integrating culture into their major sports events. There are cities that have hosted um, Super Bowls and integrated yeah. the arts into them. We really haven't done a, 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 the yeah. job we could do yeah. based on the richness of our um, uh, talent um, yeah. uh, um, resources in the city. So um, I, I'm with you. I'm with you. Yeah. I, I, that's a perfect closing statement. And um, I can't tell you how much I appreciate the time with you and I look forward to everything you ever will do in life. Um, I'm still around and I um, uh, ask you to stay in touch and let me know what you're doing. So we make sure to play it up as much as we can in our Absolutely. Okay. Thank you so much. So that's it for today. I hope you enjoyed it. Some good information, maybe a little fun. And um, I wanted to let you know that we have a newsletter that goes out just in advance of the show. You can sign up for it simply by going to crosstownconvos at gmail.com. And uh, it's got a lot more stuff in it, a lot more articles and images and uh, information on the guests who are on. So um, think about it. Sign up if you'd like. Um, Gene Nathan for Crosstown Conversations on WBOK, what people are talking about.